Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. In history, leaders have achieved some incredible goals, and usually in spite of a lot of public criticism. And when I say public, I mean public, in the paper, in the press, everywhere, and frequently quite strong opposition. Now, the advantage of looking at historical figures is that we know the results, even sometimes decades later, and we know those results had the impact that the leader had hoped for, perhaps even more than the leader had hoped for. So, for example, take the the building of the Panama Canal. It was a near disaster. The French had abandoned it. It cost lots of money and it cost lives. But the ultimate impact has been enormous in lots of ways. So how, as a leader of this, do you persevere? What keeps you going? What's really leading to the success? And I think you're going to find that the story of this one and others are actually very powerful lessons for leadership today. So my guest today is Brad Borkin. Brad has a lifelong interest in how people and businesses survive and thrive, particularly in almost impossible situations. He's the co-author of two books. The first is an award-winning book entitled, When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decisions Making Lessons from the Antarctic. And I will say we've done a former podcast on this one that I found fabulous. Um, And that book has been listed in the top 100 best decision-making books of all times. Don't we all wish we could achieve that accomplishment? All right. And this book puts the leader in the sort of near life and death decisions of some of the early explorers. And then it has huge lessons in terms of leadership, teamwork, and sheer determination that make us all um, go forward. Now, the second book is similar. It's called Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results. How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World. And these are six epic achievements by three ordinary people. I think you're going to agree with me that it's an amazing story with a lot of implications. Brad is is an author and a lecturer. He's traveled to all seven continents, and he's presented at business and Antarctic conferences, as well as on TV. He's been a guest on numerous podcasts and radio programs, and he's a previous employee for SAP, and now spending his time full-time speaking and writing. So, Brad, welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here, Wanda. It's great to have you back. I um, was super inspired by our last episode talking about the explorers. And I have to tell you, I am not one who sort of hung on all the excitements of the explorers from my childhood and read them and listened to all the stories. But just the insights from those were incredible. And I find this book, Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, very similar. So let me ask the question I always start with, which is why. Why did you get so interested in studying historical leaders? Why do you want to write about them? It's like you said at the the beginning, that there's a lot we can learn from them. And they can be inspirational. We can look at them because we can see them as a rounded individual. And because we can look at their history, and and often these people are quite famous, so there are a lot of biographies written. And there's a lot that we can look at both from the point of view of the person and the endeavor they were undertaking. Okay. 
I yeah, I'm excited to hear about that one. So there are three people in the book. Um, Brunel, who's an engineer and who built the Thames Tunnel and some some phenomenal railroad engineering in the UK. There's Theodore Roosevelt, who's president in the U.S. and who is responsible for the completion of the Panama Canal or the progress, I should say, on the Panama Canal, as well as responsibility for some national parks in the U.S. And then we have Roald Edmondson, who's responsible for the Northwest Passage and an Antarctic exhibit as well. Why those three? Well, it's actually quite an interesting story because this actually wasn't the book we were planning to write. And, and actually, at one point, the first sentence of the book was going to be, this, wasn't, this isn't the book that we were planning to write. Because what happened was the, the plan was to write a book about 11 great accomplishments in history. So looking back from about 1820 to about 1914 and saying, let's look at the big, the geophysical world and think about the big things that influenced human beings. And it was like the invention of the railways, uh, building a tunnel, the first tunnel under a flowing river. If you can imagine how dangerous and risky something like that would be. Uh, Looking at things like, we weren't so interested in the invention of the airplane as much as early aviation. How did early aviation start once the plane was invented? How did, how did all-terrain vehicles get, get created? We were interested in getting to who got to the North Pole, the South Pole, uh, the top of Everest. We had, all the, we had lists and lists of things we were interested in, and we narrowed down to 11, and that was going to be the book, these 11 great endeavors, which included the things you've mentioned, the, the national parks in America, the Panama Canal, and how canals were these enormous canals were built like the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal. Uh, and and uh, we just put this all together. And we started, my co-authors in California and I'm in London, and we started building these spreadsheets because that's the way we, work, we wrote the first book was you know, work out the chapters on these spreadsheets and we like dates of, of events and who was involved and decisions that were made. And all of a sudden, three names kept reappearing in these various big things. There were things like the transatlantic cable and uh, big ships and all these different things. And we're, and like, we're looking at all these different, different things and thinking, why do we keep saying three names? And the three names were the ones you mentioned. There's Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who um, most Americans have never even heard of. And yet he's probably the greatest engineer who ever lived. There's Theodore Roosevelt, who everyone will have heard of. And yet they may not know the extent of the sorts of decisions he made and what a driving force he was behind the Panama Canal. The the canal never would have been built without him uh, and the preservation of land. And then there was Roald Amundsen, who, as you said, the first through the Northwest Passage. And and then he was also the first to the South Pole. And he's just going, there are three people emerged and they're like, what was unique about them? Why were they so much better than their contemporaries? And what can we learn from them? That was the driving force for why we ended up with these three Great. people. I love it. Let's start with six or 11 major accomplishments. Oops, there are three people who keep reappearing. So let's study them. I love that. All right, so I do want to focus on one story because I think it's nice to be able to take a little bit of a deeper dive and understand what was going wrong. And it's true for all three of these. They met enormous obstacles. Um, I would have given up, and I think I'm a pretty tenacious human being, but I would have just called it quits, sunk cost, gone home, started over again. They didn't. I want to focus on Roosevelt and the Panama Canal. So let's set the stage for this one. The Panama Canal didn't start with Roosevelt. 
the French had a plan and they largely failed. Why did they stop their plan? Okay, well, let's take a little bit earlier step back, or go even earlier in history, which is uh, when Balboa discovered Panama and they marched across it, they were looking for gold and they got to the other side and they realized actually this is a pretty narrow strip of land. There's an enormous ocean on the other side. From that moment on, people started thinking about how do you join the oceans together? And they're looking for waterways, ways of connecting the rivers in Panama. And that had been going on for hundreds of years. And, and what people realized is there's no way to connect the rivers. And, the, and by the 1870s, 1880s, the French came in and said, we're going to actually dig a canal. And the way that they, and uh, the, the French dug the Suez Canal. And what they did, they, they basically dug uh, basically a trench and it, filled, it basically filled the water. And they thought, well, that we could do in the Suez. Why not do exactly the same thing in Panama? We could, it sort of makes sense. It's okay. like you could yeah. just dig a trench and, let the, and theoretically the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean are at the same level. Though that's not quite true because you've got, they are at the same level, but the, Pan, the Pacific Ocean has a lot more waves Mm-hmm. In it, 20, it can have 20-foot waves coming into Panama, which the Atlantic Ocean doesn't. But th- in theory, the, the concept's true, that you could dig a trench. And, they, and that's what they attempted to do. But they totally underestimated that Panama is an enormous swamp and jungle and rife with yellow fever and malaria. And uh, it, it would be rainy season. It has the Chagres River, which is one of the most volatile rivers in the entire world. And it can rain, like a day's rain can turn it to, you know, into a, into a flood, flood stream. And uh, it can rise in 20 feet in, in, uh, in, with water. It's just like these sorts of th- challenges exist in Panama. And, I, and the French just underestimated it. And, and the, the, the problems were immense. It was like you had the dying workforce from the, from the diseases in, in Panama. You had the rainy season. You had uh, the terrain. It is just it is just an enormous number of obstacles, and then you had just the sheer digging. It's it, you know it's it's uh, it's it's a challenge no matter how you looked at it for that. And again, and also there were it was the you're talking about eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. It's early uh, steam driven shovels and and things like that. And and uh, but it's like how much could you actually how much earth could you actually dig, and yeah. and. That was the challenge. Numerous, numerous challenges. Yeah. Well, you can imagine, as I imagine with many leaders and teams that I see, you've had one success. We dug this amazing Suez Canal. Look how brilliant we are. It's great. We'll just go do it again in another place and won't be the French be wonderful, you know, empire builders, et cetera. You can sort of see the belief that if it worked in one place, it would work again. And I'll remind everybody, this was before we actually understood what was causing yellow fever or malaria, and certainly before we had a cure for it in any sense. So here we are in the middle of a swamp with massive flooding. It's not sand. It's really heavy and very wet and a lot harder to move than sort of the sandish environment of the Suez. Volatile rain rainy season, workers dying right, left, and center. And I can imagine all sorts of stories being told about the workers about what not to do and, where, you know, all sorts of mythology circling. So Roosevelt comes in with this crazy idea that the Americans can do what the French have failed at. Tell us what happened. 
right? So, so it's an absolutely remarkable story. The French, uh, well, let's just take a, uh, another step back and be, one of the challenges in Panama as well is, and, and whether you're going to build the canal in Panama or you're going to, you know, there's another talk of people building it in Nicaragua. But basically the idea was maybe you can't build a, uh, a sea level canal. Maybe you, if you're going to do this in Nicaragua, because there was a lot of interest in Nicaragua because it has an enormous lake in the middle of it, that actually you could build locks that would take you up to the lake, let you sail across the lake and drill locks back down to the, to the ocean. And, uh, and the, the French rejected this idea. They were there into this idea of let's build in Panama and let's build this enormous trench. And even though uh, going back in history, there was a Frenchman who said, no, 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 don't do this. this is, you know, I've, I've got a lot of experience in this sort of environment and you need to do it with as a lock-based canal. And it was at the very end of the French build that they actually did start building and try to build locks. And uh, they brought in Eiffel who built the, the Eiffel Tower and and to design the locks, but then they ultimately failed. It was just a, a financial disaster. So into this mix, you've got for I mean, a lot of all the Americans on the on the audience will know that that uh, Roosevelt became president because McKinley was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. So six months into into McKinley's term, all of a sudden Roosevelt becomes president, and he's the youngest president ever to take office, and he's got great ambitions. Ambitions about protecting land for for what, protecting wildlife and for presenting preventing uh, developers from from developing large parts of the the, the western part of the U.S. Uh, and he's got great ambitions for the U.S. as a global power. Because think back into the early 1900s, the U.S. Europe is still the dominant force. And it's hard to imagine a world where the U.S. wasn't the, isn't the dominant force, but that's the way it was there. And the, and he saw the, those. Panama Canal, as that's going to get the U.S. on the map, we will then control. And also, as a benevolent country, we will control it better and in a more free way than any other nation on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he, he, as soon as he became president, he's like, we're going to go do this. And he, he engineered the idea that what we will do is we will buy the French dig, basically. We'll set, we'll, we'll, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated story and I won't go into a lot of the, the other detail, but basically the, the concept of, of he wants to buy the French dig and it's going to be the biggest real estate transaction ever to happen in the entire world. But that doesn't daunt him. And, and of course, all these things have to be approved by Congress and Congress was as fractured then as, you know, <laughs> as, as far away as it is now. It's like, you know, you've got, you know, he was a Republican. It's, it's, you know, the Democrats and Republicans fighting over, What's right, and and is this the right thing for the U.S. to be doing? Is a, a good spend of money, and uh, he forces it through through Congress. Even though he 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 was one who wanted Nicaragua as the path through, but he ultimately, based on all the input, he took a he took a lot of input from lots of people. He knew he was not an authority. Mm-hmm. He was probably one of the brightest people on earth, and yet he what he knew. He's not an authority. He was an authority on, on naval ships, on military maneuvers, all sorts of different things, but he knew he needed that input. And that's what was one of the starting points, was, was making this big purchase. Yeah. And 
I can't but, imagine. Uh, I can't imagine persuading Congress that this, the largest transaction in real estate the world has ever seen, a failing transaction, by the way. So we're going to buy a disaster that had practically bankrupt the French. Persuading Congress that they were going to invest this much money. I can see the vision for why this was an important thing to do and that this would, you know, make the U.S. in a much more powerful trading nation by joining the oceans. But what an obstacle. Okay. So tell, I want to know a little bit about, um, so let's finish with the story. What happened next? So I know that there were some okay. major turning okay. points, but what happened? All right. So he, he brought in an engineer and he set up what was called the uh, uh, Canal Commission. And the Canal Commission was going to be these seven men. It was, all this was driven by men. And, yeah. and these men are going to control all the costs. So one of the things was like, we're not going to let the costs get out of hand because Canal Commission is going to make all those expenditure decisions. They were bring, doing exactly what the French were doing, where they were bringing cheap labor from the Caribbean and they were, uh, and, and other parts, and they were the engineering where the French use French engineers, the Americans are using American engineers, but they went in with the same mindset. You're going to build a, a trench basically fill and it will fill up. And, and now, the, and, and just to explain a bit more about the geography, you've got the continental divide mountains. Now, by the time the continental divide mountains as the Rocky mountains, as they come down through it, so uh, the, what a continental divide mountain is, is basically if it rains on one side, the water goes into the Pacific. If it rains on the other side, the water goes into the Atlantic. And while the mountains are not that tall in Panama, they're very dense. And as you said at the beginning, you've got this heavy clay soil. And the more they dug, the more landslide slides happen. And you're not just digging a simple trench. You're digging a trench that's 300 feet wide. Because you've got the ships are big even at that point. These ships are the size of the Titanic that you've got to dig a trench that's 600, 300 feet wide at the base, which means you've got to build like, they kept having to dig it wider and wider at the top because the, uh, the landslides were, were happening. And so you've got this dynamic where you've got the rainy season, you've got the floods, you've got the workers dying of malaria. And the, um, the Americans are actually at the end of the first year are doing worse than the French ever did. <laughs> so you can imagine the flack that Roosevelt is taking for this. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the environment he, he came in, he was facing. So okay. should I go on? <laughs> so, well, let's pause and think about this. So, you know, he was not exactly welcomed as a president at the time because he wasn't the elected president. He was vice president in the American system and he's there because the president is dead. So, okay, he's not loved even by his own party. Members of Congress don't like this big expenditure. He's got massive control. And then you've got this canal commission that is determined to manage control themselves. So was there anybody anywhere who was actually on his side? Um, yes, there, there were certainly he had, pe- he had people who understood what he was trying to do. Uh, but yes, he was at times he had um, at one point during the debate, over the building of the canal. And even when they're going, he, he was like, he sort of forced it through Congress in a way that was like, let them argue with me. Let them keep arguing against me or criticizing me. Meanwhile, we're going to start to dig it. <laughs> we're going to start to dig. <laughs> so it's like, he was willing to take a lot of criticism and, and flack because he was so determined to make this happen. Okay. And what ended up happening was his, 
one of the engineers who he brought an engineer as the chief engineer who was a railway guy. His expertise was in building the railway in in the U.S. One of the one of the big right. Western railways. And what he realized, and this is a wonderful business lesson for people, is that that he, what he realized, this engineer realized, was that. The problem was not digging the soil per se. The, they, with the steam shovels and things, they could dig lots of soil. The problem was, what are you going to do with the stuff you dig out? Yeah. You're digging this enormous trench, but you've got to get rid of the soil, or what they called spoil, uh, which is the, the soil you want to ditch, basically. Right. And so there was a Panama Railway. Actually, the Panama Railway was built by the Americans Right. Uh, in the 1850s. And, and so they were using this train line, which actually ran the length of where the, the canal was running. And he, he, as a railway guy, he realized the smartest thing to do is it's not the dig that's the problem. It's getting rid of this stuff. And you're putting this, you're digging and you're putting on rail cars. But the heavy clay, when you go to empty the rail cars, the rail cars aren't emptying all the way. Mm-hmm. That the rail cars, and he invented or, or worked out this way: you have rail cars that tip up and sweep out all the muck. And so now the rail cars were emptying all the way. He also worked out that if you've got the Continental Divide mountains, you want to run the railway up empty, so you might come up from the Pacific side empty, fill up the train cars, and then drive it down the Atlantic side and empty it, empty the earth. And then do the same and then drive the train back up empty because easier to take the train uphill empty and then take it downhill full. And all, and he did a lot of clever things, but the big lesson out of this was what's the problem you're solving where everyone looked at it. Like the problem to solve is the soil is the dig. And he's like, no, the problem to solve is what are you going to do with the stuff you're digging out? And it's just a wonderful lesson for modern business. It's like, Make sure you're solving the problem that's really the problem. Yeah. How many times do we say that as consultants, lonely because we've discovered after the fact, you know, after a disaster that we were solving the wrong problem, like the wrong client problem, the wrong internal problem, the wrong employee problem all the way around. So we got a really clever engineer who's not really an expert in canals at all. He's an expert in railway and you see him use his expertise to solve different kind of problems that actually helps them begin to make some progress. But eventually, Brad, they get to the point where they realize this isn't going to work. Right. There's, there's a, well, there are two problems that, that, that so let's take the first, the first of the, of the problems. The workforce is still dying. Yeah. And that is both, and, and so they're having trouble recruiting work, workers and you've got this big malaria, yellow fever problem, which is, and, and at that stage, people believe that yellow fever came from bad sanitation. Mm-hmm. Again, this is about solving the right problem. And by luck or circumstance, uh, there's an American doctor named Dr. Gorgas who had served in Cuba. And he believed, unlike any other doctor in, in America, that yellow fever was caused by mosquitoes. So he proposes a solution to this which is kill every mosquito and all the larvae and the entire canal zone. The canal zone is like 10 miles across and 50 miles long. And so you, you, and he's like, we're going to kill every single mosquito. And he goes to the canal commission and says, it's going to cost a million dollars. Now a million dollars back then is a whole lot more money than it is today. And it would be the biggest health initiative 
ever undertaken. So you think about you know, what we're what we're doing today with COVID and the health initiative that we're that we're seeing today. Well, the, what's doing something back in the early 1900s was is just unheard of spending that sort of money for a health initiative. And the Canal Commission turns around and goes, "No, we'll give you fifty thousand dollars." So Gorgas knows that there's no way the canal is going to get built without this initiative. The, you know, it's just, just not going to happen. And so he goes to Roosevelt directly. Mm-hmm. So this is about talking uh, truth to power. Now, it wasn't that Roosevelt was opposed to this, but it's a big expenditure and it's going against the Canal Commission. So the Canal Commission was there to control costs. And now all of a sudden you're going to say, not only do we spend all this money on the French dig, now we're going to actually uh, have this enormous other cost. And so Roosevelt is like, where do I get advice? Because I'm not a doctor. He's not going to have a medical degree. So he goes to his personal physician, who is the, the, the White House physician, and says, what do you think? And the physician says, if you want the canal, fund Gorgas's program. So wow. Roosevelt did. That's amazing. Um, because, you know, we can think of a whole bunch of places in history where the scientist was right, but it took us several hundred years to realize they were right. And they were, you know, just seen as pariah in their society for advocating these crazy things. And you got one doctor who's advocating. We now know he was right, but no one knew at the time that it was mosquitoes. It was completely believed that yellow fever and malaria was some other cause. So, personal physician who says, go ahead. Wow. Talked about, talk about anecdotal evidence, a case of one and your faith in one person. Okay. So Roosevelt says, okay, goes against the commission, goes against the medical community, goes against all wisdom and spends a million dollars more. (laughs) It's almost, it's almost unbelievable in the, in the sense that, that, even the, the proposition that you could kill every mosquito yeah. in, in, in a five hundred in, in, in this in this uh, in this this enormous swamp is almost unbelievable, and yet yeah. you know, to say, oh yes, we'll, we'll go do that and, and we'll fund it. And interestingly, it was successful. Okay. And within about a year and a half, the last Yogorgas uh, actually called at at the medical one of the medical centers. He takes the his uh, staff, some of his staff into the morgue of the hospital and says, I want you to see something. He shows a dead body. He said, that's the last yellow fever death that will ever happen in the canal zone. Wow. And he was right. And he was right. That is amazing. Uh, You know, it, it does. I hear the story and it makes me wonder about how many times we actually really have the courage of our own convictions. How many times we're really willing to say, I'm going against conventional wisdom. I'm going to take advice. I'm going to get an expert. I'm going to listen to that expert. And everybody in the universe is telling me no. And I'm going to have the courage to go ahead with it. And now we are going to have to pause at that moment because this is a perfect place to take a break. Because the question I want to ask to come back is, why did he keep going? What was it that motivated him to keep going? So with that, we'll take a break. My guest today is Brad Borkin. The book that we're talking about is Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results. And I remind you, this is but one of six stories in this book about achieving unbelievable results against astronomical odds. We'll be right back. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Brad Borkin. We're talking about audacious goals, remarkable results. We've been looking back at a historical figure that achieved one of six amazing things. As you heard from Brad at the very beginning, there were 11 amazing achievements. But this particular time, we've been talking about Theodore Roosevelt, the choice to buy the French dig in the Panama Canal that had just about bankrupt the French and was certainly clearly a disaster, one of the largest real estate transactions in the world at that moment in time. And by that mess, I'm going to say, um, uh, to persuade Congress, who was not in favor, um, a lot of people who were against, the costs were astronomical, and the obstacles were huge. And as we've heard, there was a story, there is a problem with the, what to do with the soil as you're digging. So that had to get solved. Turns out it got solved by a railway engineer. Then there's a problem with sanitation and health. People are dying right, left, and center from malaria fever. And we have to, or yellow fever. We have to figure out how to solve that problem. We didn't know at that point in time. And so we undertake this astronomically large health initiative costing a million dollars in 1870s monies, 1900s monies. Okay, Brad, 
I want to know, against all these obstacles, why did Roosevelt keep going? Why did he persevere? What kept him moving? Roosevelt had this vision that the canal was essential to American prosperity. Because when you think about the West Coast is developing, the East Coast is developing, but if you want to move goods from one coast to the other, the only way to do that was to go down to the bottom of South America. The challenge with going to the bottom of South America, one is the sea journey is very long. The seas are very rough. As we said, with the, my first book was uh, uh, about the Antarctic explorers. So I've been down there. I've been on those seas. It's, it, they're exceedingly rough. And this is before the, there's sonar and radar and all these different things that can help weather, good weather forecasting. And there are tremendous storms. So you've got this tremendous risk that if you're going to move goods from the east coast of America to the west or west coast to the east, there's a risk the ships won't even make it and the goods will get floundered or there'll be pirates or, you know, all sorts of different things could happen. And so the canal was essential, not just for for that, but then you've got prosperity coming from the west coast, things happening in San Francisco that can get moved and California get moved over to Europe, again, because you don't have to go down to the bottom of South America, and uh, you can get goods from um, the East Coast, New York and, and various places over to Asia. So the canal was essential to American growth. And, and Roosevelt was a phenomenal speaker. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's hard to imagine someone who was as eloquent as, as Roosevelt. And he talked, um, he had these wonderful turns of phrases, like glorious triumphs. And he'd have the, he just had this belief that, you had to be out there. You had to be the, the people out there doing things that uh, he had quotes and there are quotes in, the, in our book about that no, nothing ever was accomplished by someone who basically just sat back and watched that the, ignore the, the critics are, are not the people achieving things. This is the man in the arena. So he's very, I mean, of quite a sexist time, but he always talked about the man in the arena, the one who gets beat up and bloodied and, and, that that's to be praised. The critics are to be ignored. And, uh, and he talked about glorious triumphs mm-hmm. and this concept that it's more important to have glorious triumphs. And if you, even if you don't get your glorious triumph, then at least you tried. And it's better mm-hmm. to have be someone who tried and failed than to never even just try. And so he, I mean, he, I mean, he was a very motivational speaker. You know, the speeches are just incredible. And, and I think this, this helped motivate others to come to his side and see his vision of the world. Well, uh, for those who don't know much about uh, Teddy Roosevelt's life, it was not a pretty picture. I mean, yes, he came from lots of money and he had lots of um, security, financial security and all those things. But he had some dramatic tragedies early on that was a huge part of farming him. And if you haven't read Doris Kern Goodwin's history of him and the formation of his character, I highly recommend that one in addition to Brad's book. But I just want to note, he had some really major personal tragedies that he had to come back from in order to get back into politics. So we've got a person who believes that I have to be out in the public, believe that trying, even if you fail, is more important. 
a passionate belief that this is about America's future and the prosperity of the U.S. for the long run, that this was the only way possible, and therefore was just going to keep going and, in effect, persuade the people to follow him, even if Congress and the Canal Commission were not highly enthusiastic. Fair? That's right. Exactly. Okay. All right. So we're all feeling rah-rah. We've solved yellow fever. We've solved the get rid of the soil problem, but the problems aren't over yet. Eventually, they end up abandoning the dig. So tell us what happened then. So it's just a remarkable story, which is that they ultimately realize, the chief engineer realizes that there is no way to do a sea level canal. That's that the challenges are too immense. You're moving too much earth, uh, and it was just it's just not going to happen in, in any sort of reasonable time frame. They there was a prediction that it may take till 1927 to build a canal if you're going to build a sea level canal. That that the, they they you know dig through their, um, uh, this one area of of, of the the continental divide mountains. And it just immediately landslide and they lose a month and a half worth of work in 20 minutes. And so, so it was, um, they, and what they realized was they needed to build locks. And so uh, the chief engineer goes to Roosevelt. Actually, he hated, he actually hated being on a ship and he, he, despite having, hating being on a ship and seasickness and everything, he goes on a ship to Washington, D.C. and goes to Roosevelt and said, there's only one way to produce this canal, and that's with, with locks. And we're, what we're going to do is basically we're going to build three locks each side to take you up to the level of the um, – and, and in addition, now we're going to build these enormous locks, three locks each side going one way and the other way, so to- 12 locks in total – and we're going to build the biggest dam in the world to make the art- biggest artificial lake in the world. So we're going to dam the Chagres River. We're going to build this enormous lake. All of that's a lot of that f- area that's going to get flooded is the French dig. So all that money you spent for the French dig, a bunch of that's wasted. But that's the only way to proceed. So uh, we've made this massive real estate transaction that's the largest in the world. We're spending, you know, huge quantities of hard-earned cash, many might argue, taxpayer money, on buying it. And we're about to flood everything we've bought. Okay, so... About half, half, about half, of, half of what we bought, yes. Okay, so all the labor, all the everything, flood it, Okay. So, engineer must have been really convinced. How did he persuade Roosevelt that he was right? It was, um, so I think, and this goes back to your concept in, in, the, in, in your book, Wanda, and, and the things you've talked about, about leadership and expertise and the sense of being an expert. It's, uh, the engineer was the expert, but Roosevelt was also very, knowledgeable. I mean, he was probably one of, the, one of the smartest people in terms of, of the sense of being able to look at situations and understand situations. So he could understand and look at the engineering and form opinions. Now, he wasn't the engineer, but he could, he could understand all the challenges in, in a very... Uh, so he could see the strategy, but he could also understand the tactics to get that strategy. And 
uh, he also believed, and one of, the, one of the lessons that we come out of this whole s- story is that he hired people who could think strategically and think tactically at the same time because that's what he did. And it's a wonderful ability to, to, to say, uh, I don't know everything, but I know enough to know that I've got to study as well. I can't just be a leader who wings it. And, and, uh, I mean, I had to go back before Congress, obviously. And, and, but the, but the effort, and I think in a, before computers, now locks were well understood. Locks had been built from probably the 1600s, but nothing of the scale that was ever designed. You know, we were talking about locks are three times the size of any lock ever built in the world. You're talking about the use of concrete in a way that's never been used in the world before. And it's nothing that can be tested. You can't run simulations on this. You are in the jungle, in the swamps, pouring concrete, doing these enormous gates for, I mean, Wanda, you said you've, you've been through I've the canal. Been through I wasn't it, yeah. able to go yeah. to the canal because when we were writing the book, I, my trip was canceled because of COVID. It's like, but the, um, all the photos I've, I've seen and, and I mean, it's, it's, an, an, it's unbelievable what they built. Yeah. But it was that, that sense that, we're going to have to do something that goes against our grain, goes against yeah. what we're going to do, but that's the only way to go forward. It's, so it's I like that you lesson. say he could think strategically and tactically. And, you know, I think this is a conundrum not many people understand. So I got the vision. I need, know why we need to do it and know what needs to happen in order for us to make the canal functioning. Okay, check. I know why it's important. But you can also understand tactically what's going wrong, and you can understand the tactics, even if you're not the expert engineer. And I think that's part, that's that challenge of how do I do a little bit of the expertise, not try to become the engineer who's making the decisions, but I understand how it all fits together, how the parts are all together. I've become fond of talking in the last um, couple of weeks about systems thinking again, and this notion that I see the whole system and I see the tactics that are going to have the operational issues that are going to have to get resolved for the whole system to function. But what's, So you say that um, Roosevelt can think that way, but what's even more powerful is he hires people who can think strategically and tactically. And I look at my clients today, one of the biggest complaints I hear from leaders is I don't have people who can think strategically. They can do tactically, but they're not thinking Big picture, business, where are we going, where are the obstacles, what does those mean, et cetera. Fascinating. Okay, and then he listens to the engineer. So there's an awful lot of faith he has to have in these people who've come to him. Um, Dr. Gorkas, the engineer, the railroad guy in the very beginning. I mean, that's a lot of faith in the folks that, and you're putting your reputation, <laughs> your legacy 100% on the line. So is there a reason he trusted these people or any insight on that? Uh, it, it, I think he had to. I mean, these were the people on the ground. They were the people who uh, he had hired. And I, th- I think ultimately it came down to this was the only way to get the canal built. I think he understood that it was enormously difficult. And actually, there's a wonderful story. Uh, in 1906, he goes down to the canal. And he goes down to see the canal in uh, the rainy season. So Roosevelt, who uh, didn't believe in all the, well, he did believe in all the presidential pomp and circumstance, but on one other level, at a very personal level, he was an outdoors person. He was a mm-hmm. cowboy. He was, I mean, he grew up as, as you, you, you talked about this, this 
childhood where he was he was a sickly boy growing up in a, one of the wealthiest families in America. And then he goes and becomes this rough, tough guy. He takes up boxing at, at Harvard where he studied. He um, becomes a cow. He lives out in the West. I know that's very famous old Americans will know the story. He becomes a rough rider. He's, he, it's, it's, um, and, and he's like, hey, I want to go, if I'm going to the canals and I don't want to go and get this pristine little uh, parade. I want to be out there with the workers. I want to be out there seeing the dig. I want to, and, and the, the dig of the, the, um, Panama Canal, this dig through the, the continental divide is called the Calebra Cut, which is this digging this enormous trench, basically. And he goes down and, well, well, even before we talk about that, he goes down by ship, this presidential ship and all this, and it goes down and, and, and he immediately leaves the ship and goes off to see, you know, he, he sort of goes AWOL. He basically goes off and says, I'm going to go set my own agenda. I don't want to. I'll do some of the pomp and circumstance stuff and I'll do the talks, but I also want to go to help talk, get my own view of what's doing. And he's very, and he gave his own impromptu speeches to the workers and engineers and things like that. And then he, um, uh, goes into the clever cut, uh, in his white suit. And this is all very formal. And he goes up to the, um, he wants to sit in the, in the driver's street of the steam, one of the big steam shovels. And it's, it's just a remarkable photograph. The first time that uh, an American president is portrayed in a picture or a photograph that isn't looking like a businessman or a president, basically. Like a, he, he's in there looking like he looks sort of, uh, he's got this white suit, white hat on in this very dirty, mucky Dig you know, sitting in this 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 steam shovel and getting instructed by the workers on how to run how to operate. I don't know if he actually does operate it, but he spends like twenty minutes talking with them. And it's like, and he's in there during the rainy season, so it's not raining all the time, but it's like you know downpours and then it clears up. And this, and and he's 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 reveling in this, and this is his element. And I think this is the sense of how you inspire people. It's the first time, actually, and this is really important for Americans because they may not know this, which is it's the first time an American president actually set foot out of the US, out of the United States. And some people in Congress are saying that is, um, should not be done. Right. And you can imagine the forcefulness of that, as we know, like yeah. how things get talked about in Congress today is it, that the forcefulness of people saying an American president never should leave American soil. That is right. a precedent that's been set since George Washington and should never happen. And here's Theodore Roosevelt coming down to Panama yeah. in the rainy season. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful story, but it's how he is getting firsthand knowledge. He's uh, talking to the, the workers. Uh, the, a lot of the people doing the dig are black. Uh, a lot of the engineers are white. It's, but he's having lunch with them and he's like, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful story of, of leadership. It's the, the um, management by walking around right. method of getting. Yeah. And we're not talking about walking around. And, and, yeah. It's not about walking around through the office building. We're talking about walking around through the, the dirtiest, muckiest part of the entire operation in the most far flung corner. So getting down and dirty and actually really seeing it. And I can imagine with his more, um, his belief about the man in the arena, the man out there doing the hard work that he was really enthusiastic to be there and see it. And probably also contributed to some of his belief that the engineers were telling him the truth about what was happening. Okay. I can also see Congress having fits 
at this point in time. You know, the president is not here, not looking after the country, not protecting the country. What if something happens to him? Okay. All right. So we've talked a little bit about how Roosevelt persuades people to go along with him. And it's this getting down to the man in the arena. It's his um, oratory skills, his speech-making skills. It's his belief in the ultimate mission and the importance of that mission for America's prosperity and for everybody's well-being over the long run. But did he have any tactics for dealing with all the naysayers? I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people around thought he was an idiot. And the cartoons produced of him were pretty um, unkind, shall we say. So how did he deal with his opposition? I, th- I think he, he uh, strongly believed in what he was doing. And I think that, that, was, that was the critical thing. He talked of the canal not as the finished object. In fact, he, interestingly, he never saw the canal finished. He was still alive. It wasn't because he, he had died. It was because finishing the object, whatever that object is, is not the important thing. The important thing is the benefit it brought to America, the benefit it brought to the world. He was constantly focused on, don't, you know, let's not focus on the problems of the dig. Let's not focus on the problems of finishing the canal. Let's not focus on how challenging the um, building these locks is going to be. It's the benefit that's going to come out of that. It's the end result beyond the finishing of the, of the thing. It's, it's the big benefit. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think, and this is true for all the three people in our book, uh, Brunel, Roosevelt, and Amundsen, is they just didn't listen to naysayers. In every case, people were saying, it can't be done. I can't get to the South Pole. You can't get through the Northwest Passage. People for 400 years have been trying to get through the Northwest Passage. Uh, Why do you you'll never you build a tunnel. Yeah. 50 engineers said you'd never build a tunnel under a river, mm-hmm. uh, under a flowing river. It, they told Brunel that. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, it's, a, it's having that strong belief that you know this can be done and that just because people say it can't be done doesn't necessarily mean it can't be done. It's, right. It's, it's also, in all of those system. cases, it's finding other experts who are going to join you in the journey, who also believe it's possible. And you have to have that expertise there with you. You can't do it solo. And you have to get them bought into the belief that it might be possible. Exactly. But, Exactly. I want to go back to You've this. Got, I think, oh, if I could just interrupt for one thing, one second. The, the, um, what Roosevelt was good at was realizing you don't have to agree with people on everything to get them on your side. All he was trying to do was try to get people to say, yes, the canal is good. You may agree with, disagree with every other policy I have, but will you agree that the canal is going to add value? And so there's there's that side as well, which is is something I think with, with – he was able to to build bonds with people on this one thing, right. even if they hated everything else his administration was doing. That's um, when we look at people who, like Adam Kahane, for example, who spend their lives helping groups deal with conflict. Adam says the same thing, that even if you don't agree on a whole host of other things, including some values, so long as you can agree that this is a cause that's worth spending our time on and solving, this is a thing worth doing, even if we disagree on everything else, but we can agree on that goal, then you got a step to make forward. So you're getting the same thing here. 
focusing people on, we agree that the accomplishment of having the canal is worthwhile. And not getting stuck on the goal, we often get too stuck on the goal, achieve, you know, so many sales or so many customers, so much rating. He wasn't stuck on that goal. He was stuck on what the goal enabled him to do, enabled the country to do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't how much earth we dug this year, this month, this year. It was on, we're, we're making progress on this big goal. Progress on the goal. And that's true, as I remember, of all the explorers, writers, engineers, or engineers and statesmen that you've written about, is they all had this bigger mission than achieving the one goal that was set in front of them, like get to the South Pole, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So to finish the story, just not leave everybody hanging, it does eventually succeed. They were right in building the locks. They've succeeded at it. It gets completed well after Roosevelt is out of office and he's off doing other things and it's completed. And it did indeed lead to some prosperity for the U.S. So And trade for the world at large. It's not just a U.S. story on that one. Um, when you pull back, and I'm unfairly, I'm giving you three minutes. If when you pull back and say, as I look at all three of these men, Brunel, Roosevelt, and Edmondson, What's the three top lessons you have in terms of dealing with adversity and achieving audacious goals? I think um, one is that it takes patience, that these things were multi-year endeavors. Every single one of them was a multi-year endeavor, that the canal was more than two terms of of a two presidents would have. It, It was going to take more than eight years to build it. And, but Roosevelt was, was pursued it anyway. Okay. So that's one, one thing. It takes patience. Uh, w- another big lesson was mastering the detail. And we talked about, about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, probably the, th- the third is that failure is part of the process. That you're going to make mistakes. And you've got to... It, it, I, mean, I know we talk about that nowadays in business. We say... Oh, failure is just part of the process. But this is, they, they actually built failure into the whole plan. Setbacks, obstacles, they knew that they were going to have all of these. Uh, and that was more baked into to any of the plans than perhaps businesses do today. Um, so anticipating. Yeah, they didn't that just pay, pay, yeah. Yeah, that we're doing things nobody has ever done before. So it's not going to go smoothly. It's not going to go perfectly. Um, I'm sure there were a few more maybe obstacles. To, yeah, go ahead. I just want to leave your, the, the listeners with, with one other key thing, which is if you took one lock from the Panama Canal and you stood it on its end today, it would be the 27th largest building, tallest building in America. That, and they built 12 of these in the early 1900s. I mean, to give you a sense of the scale of the yeah. um, achievement. Great. Great. It's amazing. All six of these stories are amazing accomplishments against unbelievable odds. And, you know, we talk about resilience and perseverance and sticking with it. And I think if you're looking for a lesson on what it means to build a resilient culture or to be a resilient person, you can't go wrong with these stories. The thing that stands out to me, and I, it won't surprise you, is this notion of believing in the impact of what you're trying to achieve and not losing sight of the impact and then getting people, even opposition around you to agree that the impact is worth it. And then finding people who are going to help you figure out what the right problems are strategically and tactically and get about solving those problems. 
I think that's a pretty good insight. Brad, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. My, my guest Thank today, you. Brad Borkin. Um, the book that we've been talking about is Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results. And join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. If you like what you've heard today, please like us on your favorite podcast player. And if you want to know more about how to apply these principles and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.